NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Hello, PSUK listeners. This is Nish Kumar, and I'm here with Coco Khan. Hi, guys. Unfortunately, we're watching a war unfold uh, on a terrifying scale and events are moving rapidly. So we recorded our show yesterday and at that point there hadn't been significant moves from the UK leadership. But since then, the UK government has launched a twin-pronged diplomatic mission. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak flew overnight to Israel and Foreign Secretary James Cleverly to Egypt. This morning, Rishi Sunak expressed his solidarity with the Israeli people. He also met with President Isaac Herzog and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I know that you are taking every precaution to avoid harming civilians in direct contrast to the terrorists of Hamas, which seek to put civilians in harm's way. But I also want to thank you for the support that your government has given to the families of British nationals caught up in this horror, including your efforts to release the hostages, secure their release. And I know that we will continue to cooperate, particularly with regard to the British nationals that are involved. Can I also say that we have seen the scenes over the past day that have shocked all of us, particularly at the hospital, and we mourn the loss of every innocent life, civilians of every faith, every nationality who have been killed. And we also recognise that the Palestinian people are victims of Hamas too. And that is why I welcome your decision yesterday that you took to ensure that routes into Gaza will be opened for humanitarian aid to enter I'm glad that you made that decision. We will support it. We're increasing our aid to the region and we will look to get more support to people as quickly as we can. So, look, the most important piece of information uh, that's come out of that press conference is that uh, Israel is going to allow the opening uh, of the Egypt-Gaza border to deliver desperately needed uh, aid supplies. Um, That was actually announced after um, President Biden had a meeting with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Look, it's it's a hugely complicated, difficult situation. I think that any push towards diplomacy and the secession of violence is absolutely key here. Um, And I think that is the that's the most important message that we need to stress. Uh, Biden yesterday warned Israel against failing to learn the lessons of 9-11. He sort of specifically invoked the aftermath of the September the 11th terrorist attack, which were a kind of justifiable outrage about an atrocity committed by a terrorist group, ended with America landing into wars that had no specific aim and no specific end and have led to uh, more tragedy unfolding throughout the Middle East. So I think that the point that Biden made was incredibly significant in the context of what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, look, hearing that there's routes available for humanitarian aid is, of course, very, very welcome. I I suppose my first question is, why did it take so long? Is it that the politicians were behind the people in this respect? I think many of us who feel very uh, emotionally connected to what happened over there, um, both in terms of the Israeli hostages, but also just the loss of life uh, amongst the Gazans. So it was really refreshing to hear Sunak mention both. Um, I was very concerned at the beginning of uh, this latest iteration that, that there wasn't enough 
enough um, mention from our political leaders of the humanitarian aspect from kind of both sides, innocent civilians, basically, from both sides. So that was that was really good to hear that finally. But yeah, I just keep wondering, you know, why did it take so long? And I think probably that means for us as the people, we might need to keep on at them as well uh, to keep going in terms of pushing for peace, pushing for diplomatic resolutions and ensuring that international law is followed. Yeah, and all of these events stem from the horrendous terrorist attack by Hamas. And in the interest of full disclosure, we should say that members of the PSUK family have been affected on both sides. And that is very much reflective of British society as a whole. Absolutely. And like you said, Nish, you know, learning the lessons from the past, these situations can cause discord in the UK amongst our own communities. And that would be that would add tragedy to tragedy. So, yeah, I agree. Um, It's been great to hear uh, community leaders speaking up about this. So just to highlight, you're about to see uh, and hear a show that we recorded yesterday. Here's the pod. I hope you enjoy it. This is Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. This week, our politicians walk a fine line through the Israel-Gaza crisis. And it's all aboard the Bibby Stockholm, the boat trip that no one wants to go on. And our prisons are full. Yes, they're so popular that they're having to turn people away. Joining us this week are Pia Sinha from the Prison Reform Trust and Anoush Shikalian of the New Statesman. Hi, Coco. <laughs> Hello. Quiet voice. <laughs> Hello, Nish. Why do you sound so meek? What's Be- going on? Because this is one of the first times we're doing this little intro chat where I've got nothing to say. You've, nothing has happened to you in the Nothing's last seven happened, days? Nothing, no. What do you mean? Why, what's going on? <sighs> you haven't been raving? Normally you're raving at the weekends. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I'm just raving mad <laughs> at home. That's all I'm doing. Do you want to tell everybody about the fact that you sat on your cat? <laughs> That was uh, when we arrived at the studio. Coco was like, I've not really done much this week. I sat on my cat. I mean, look, all I would say is, why do they make furniture the same colour as cats? <laughs> so it was a very simple mistake to make. But it really, it, I got quite anxious afterwards because I was just, so I, I didn't put my full weight down because I'm a, you know, elegant lady. I sort of glide down to my seat. Do you really? Yeah. yeah. I collapse into it. Yeah. Like crumpled paper in a bin. <laughs> like it, that's how I sit down. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. It looks like I, I'm, I'm anxious to relax at all points. So, so when you have you ever lived above anyone? Yes. So have they ever complained about like the sort of sound of a body hitting the floor? <laughs> they, I will say this. About 12 years ago, I had downstairs neighbours. I, I, I have subsequently then had downstairs neighbours and we had very good relations. But about 12 years ago, I lived above somebody who would always complain about the noise that we were making. Yeah, yeah. But it was... It was countered by the fact that her son would every so often at 2am do some very bad karaoke rap. <laughs> like excruciatingly bad karaoke rap. Okay, but if and it was so, good, would that have made a difference? If they I had an amazing flow? I genuinely think it would have helped. <laughs> okay. If I'd been living above Andre 3000, I don't think I would have been complaining. But as it was, it was insult to injury that it was happening at between 2am and 3am. And also... The man had absolutely no flow. Were there any? Were there other people there? It was just his like quiet moments. Just himself? his quiet moments. Just wow. his quiet moments. At uh, 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 the middle of the night, he decided to bust out the karaoke rap mach- machine. Do you know what? There's a guy. I don't know who it is because I live on in a flat, and so obviously, if all the windows are open in the summer, it, there's this sort of palimpsest of sound that comes from all sorts of places, and you don't know what it's bouncing. Off. You don't know where it's from. But yeah. there's someone who lives near me who plays the sax. Yeah. And I, if you're listening, mate. 
please make yourself known to me. I think it's great someone's playing the sax. Yeah, yeah. You know, is it good? Like, well, I mean, what is what is good? What's good with the sax? What do you mean, what's good with the sax? I mean, like... John Coltrane? Oh, right, he's not John Coltrane. <laughs> he's not John Coltrane, is he? I would say it was more like... Um, Bleeding Gums Murphy off The Simpsons. But Bleeding Gums Murphy was a very good saxophonist. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, he's obviously very good. Anyway, <laughs> let me tell you about my cat, right? Yeah. So I sit on this, I don't fully sit on the cat, but yeah. there's like a, a a half second before I realise that what is underneath me is a cat. Yeah. And then I get back up and I turn around and she was shell-shocked. Yeah, of course she was. The look on her face. She didn't even make a sound. So then after that, I started Googling, do cats, do they hold grudges? Like... <laughs> How will it affect our relationship? Yeah. Uh, the jury's out. Basically, the next time I might see you, I might it might be over for us. It might be a divorce. Wow. <laughs> Your cat's in search of a new owner. Yeah. Well, listen. Do write in uh, if you've ever sat on your pet. <laughs> Or you have uh, any entertaining reasons why your upstairs, downstairs, or even left or right neighbours have uh, upset you or you've upset them. MPs have finally returned to work this week after the extended break for networking and karaoke, otherwise known as party conference season. Uh, And they found themselves with a long to-do list to catch up on. Uh, The business of the week included grappling with the news that our prisons are full and there are two high-profile by-elections, plus potentially another one on the horizon uh, with the news of the suspension of Tory MP Peter Bone on Monday for bullying and sexual misconduct. Uh, To help us discuss some of the goings-on is our special guest, Anoush Chakelian, who is the Britain editor uh, at the New Statesman. Anoush, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, Britain editor is a funny title. Yeah, well, someone's got to edit Britain. <laughs> I mean, look at your intro. Yeah. Um, no, it is it is a weird title. It basically means that I go and report on sort of how politics and policy is affecting yes. Britain. We do need to start with the Israel-Gaza crisis. It's just horrific. There's no other word for it. It's terrifying. Um, the latest news is that at the time of recording, hundreds of people are feared to have been killed after a hospital in Gaza was hit. Both sides have blamed each other. We don't know the full truth of it at this time, but innocent men, women and children have been have been killed. Um, and really what we want to gather from, from you is how that's affecting the UK. Well, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, there's obviously a serious issue in the UK in terms of so many people living in this country have family in the area yeah. and are being very, very directly affected. Um, and at this kind of time of international crisis that has serious national ramifications, obviously there is a challenge presented to politicians uh, for how they conduct themselves. I mean, in terms of American politics, uh, as we record, President Biden has flown in this morning to meet Benjamin Netanyahu and reinforce US support for Israel. Um, Meanwhile, here, a consensus has emerged between uh, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party um, in terms of supporting Israel's right to defend itself against Hamas. Um, There have been murmurs from the Labour backbenches about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Um, Anoush, what's your sense about how the Labour Party is kind of handling itself in this kind of crisis? Because, I mean, as we said last week, Labour is trying to present itself as a government in waiting. And obviously when something like this happens, that is by some distance the most significant event happening in world news. You can look to the Labour Party to see what their response might have been if they'd been in power. 
How do you think that they're handling it at the moment? Well, it's interesting because the Labour Party under Keir Starmer has a very different foreign policy outlook than it would have done under Jeremy Corbyn, who was, you know, more anti-NATO in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. You could see that they might have had a different line on that under his leadership. And also, you know, he is you know famously pro-Palestinian as well. So they've taken a completely different line from that, his predecessor. And it means that they do show a united front with the Conservative government on most of these big foreign policy issues. And that's what you've seen with the Israel-Gaza crisis so far. The news was breaking while Labour Labour conference was happening. So you could see Keir Starmer developing the lines that he was taking sort of in real time. And it was very, very, you know, it was very to the message, very down the line. Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, He even went so far in one interview to say Israel had the right to cut off power and water to Gaza, which is something that has been controversial among some Labour figures. You've had some councillors resigning over that comment. And David Lammy, his shadow foreign secretary, has um, slightly softened that in in more recent interviews, um, urging Israel to show restraint. I mean, as a lifelong... Labour voter, I'm sick of saying that phrase, but you do find (laughs) ourselves saying it all the time. But as a lifelong Labour voter, I would like to not hear that line from the Labour leader. I I think that the the specific interview was with uh, Nick Ferrara and LBC and Stan was asked about whether cutting off water and electricity supplies in Gaza was a proportionate response. And he said that I think Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation, obviously. Everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step away from the core principles that Israel has the right to defend herself. But that is a contradiction in terms because cutting off electricity and water supplies, as we've seen when it was being done by the Russians is a contravention of international law. So I don't, I'm struggling to understand how it's possible to both break and respect international law in the same And I I think, you know, similar to Tanish, I'm also a lifelong Labour voter. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, uh, On the rocks, though, on the rocks. Um, You know, and I just, I, I really believe I want to see a diplomatic resolution to this crisis. And when you're... Labour leader who is meant to be a human rights lawyer does not seem to understand international law. It's it's a bit scary. It's a bit scary. And I get the sense that other Labour voters, this could be a breaking point for them. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts in terms of the ramifications of this with Labour? I think I think it is a vulnerable position for them to be in. You can see why they're taking these stances because they are so haunted. They're so scarred by the Jeremy Corbyn years when there was a problem with anti-Semitism within the party. And one of Keir Starmer's main missions since he became leader was to move the party away from that and to get rid of some of the people who were taking those positions within the party. And he has successfully done that. You know, he still gets standing ovations at Labour conference for having done that. So you could see how he didn't want to veer at all from his support for Israel. Um, Particularly, you know, when he did that interview, it was, you know, we were just seeing the atrocities that Hamas were committing. So, you know, you can kind of understand that at that point in time, he felt very, very tied to that line, but it can't hold. I think you're right. It's it's really difficult because a lot of Labour backbenchers want to hear more from their front bench about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Mm. And Yes, you've seen just councillors resigning, but you could see more um, disquiet because a lot of people feel very, very strongly about this issue on the left. Um, So I do think it's a difficult uh, um, line to tread. Keir Starmer is a lawyer. David Lammy is a lawyer. You know, they know what international... Emily Thornberry as well, because Emily Thornberry was kind of speaking supportively of Starmer's rocks. She's also a a lawyer. Yeah. They they present themselves as kind of technocrats. So it starts to muddy the waters, I think, when they say stuff like this. Also, I know that um, they are haunted to use your uh, very good words there um, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn. But like, 
What about like Iraq? We're all old enough to remember that crisis that didn't solve anything internationally and there was lots of bloodshed and it really disillusioned lots of Labour voters and it caused kind of disquiet and discord amongst kind of our a diaspora and, it, and it's all happening again. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, Iraq is something that is always, you know, another thing that haunts the Labour Party yeah. as well yeah. because it scars the Tony Blair legacy. And that's something, again, that this Labour leadership has been very committed to championing. Uh, Starmer opened his speech to the Labour Party conference talking about Labour's record in government. And of course, you know, it didn't mention the, yeah. the yeah, Iraqi yeah, yeah, yeah. part. Um, so, you know, again, that does weigh heavy on them. But I think it weighs heavy on this government as well. You yeah. know, there, there is... There is a bit of a reticence there to intervene too heavily in these issues. Um, but again, you know, mistakes can be made in terms of ignoring what public sentiment will be. And I think if we see more and more of these horrors play out in Gaza, as we've seen with the bombing of the hospital and how many people have been killed there, then I think public opinion is going to shift. Um, and I think politicians are, of course, going to have to respond to that. Mm. There was this nauseating clip of Richard Madeley interviewing Leila Moran, who yes. was a guest on yeah. our show a couple of weeks ago, and who has family uh, in Gaza. And Richard Madeley, uh, in as many words as this, asked Leila Moran if her family had any knowledge that the attack was about to happen. And I guess, I guess Richard Madeley is better than Piers Morgan. Because that's Richard the same Madeley job that he's occupied. Alan Partridge. Well, it all just feels a bit like Salmonella is preferable to E. coli. Like, <laughs> he, he, I, I've no idea why he was in a position that he was talking about such a serious situation. It seems like a profound failing at the heart of our media establishment that someone like Richard Madeley is in a situation where they could be talking about this kind of thing. Just before we move off this, um, the sort of undignified spectacle of Grant Shapps and Oliver Dowden sharing a private joke and laughing openly during the Prime Minister's statement on the terror attacks in the Houses of Parliament. It's an absolutely nauseating clip because the best case scenario is that they simply weren't listening to the Prime Minister of this country talking about the most significant issue facing the entire planet and at this current moment. I think one thing that will be a problem is his Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, saying things like waving a Palestinian flag could be, you know, yeah. tantamount yeah. to terrorism and things like that. Um, she's taken this really harsh line sort of trying to tell police to, to track down these people who are doing certain things. And, you know, if the Home Office can't deliver on that and because police will be reluctant to make arrests just for protest um, then it just shows again the impotence I think of this government particularly uh, the inadequacy of the Home Office as well so I think that's probably an area of vulnerability for them because again you're going to see more of this play out in society. Mm. Anti-Semitic anti attacks have been going up since uh, this crisis um, broke. So you're going to see more tensions in society in Britain. That's something the Prime Minister needs to be on top of. And yeah. I, I did think that actually seeing the Archbishop of Canterbury giving a kind of public press conference yeah. outside Lambeth Palace um, with the former Assistant Secretary General of the Muslim Council for Britain and the senior rabbi um, from the New North London Synagogue that was actually an example of leadership, yes. I thought. Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra, a scholar and an imam from Leicester and a former assistant secretary general of the Muslim Council of Britain and Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, the senior rabbi of Mazorti Judaism UK and rabbi of the new North London Synagogue. They speak for their own communities and networks and not for any others. But they speak out of their 
particular friendship as a Muslim and as a Jew. Yeah, those images were actually really quite nice to see, weren't they? They were, in a way, quite reassuring, even if you're not religious or part of any of those religions. Um, You're right, it it demonstrated leadership. I thought, as well, James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, um, and David Lammy, his opposite number, embracing in the Sky News studio, you know, you could see that as a bit of politicking, maybe. But I, I, again, you know, the fact that they're showing a united front shows a bit of maturity on those two politicians' part, whereas I think... Other Conservative ministers, Rishi Sunak included, have tried to start this slightly odd culture with the BBC saying, why aren't they calling Hamas terrorists? And, you know, that feels quite immature to me. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. One inevitable result of any conflict is the displacement of people. And of course, the pledge to stop the boats of asylum seekers trying to get into the UK has been one of the signature policies of Rishi Sunak's government. So one of the most visible symbols of that kind of failed policy is, of course, the Bibby Stockholm, the hulking great barge that's moored off Portland in Dorset. It's supposed to provide accommodation for 500 asylum seekers in order to save money on putting them up in hotels. It's been empty since August when the first group of 39 people to be put on board had to be evacuated following the discovery of Legionella in the water supply. The Home Office says the issues have been resolved and the first group of asylum seekers will be returned to the ship by the end of this week. Now, Anoush, this is a story you've been following closely since you went to Portland yourself uh, in August. What did actually being there tell you about this situation? It was completely bizarre. So the barge had docked um, on this private port that they have in Portland. It used to be a naval base. It was sold off in the 90s to this family. Um, So it's, you know, this private area. So there's no need to sort of consult the public properly about what goes on in this port. Um, It's a very strange looking barge. I'm sure you've seen pictures Mm. of it. It almost looks like a piece of Tetris or like Lego. Um, And they were boarding people onto the the barge that the week that I went. And I actually managed to speak to some of the asylum seekers who were living on the barge. Um, And so, you know, I'd rather give their voice to what it's like on board before we discuss the politics of it but um, they were saying you know it's very cramped it doesn't feel safe you look out of the window and it's just immediately water there's not enough crew on board you know you don't get the sense that there's like a captain of the ship or anyone who would know what to do if there was a fire they were worried about the plumbing Um, they also said that um, you know it's very echoey and just like a sort of prison like atmosphere as well Um, and they were given no choice that's probably the main thing um, to other than to go and live on this 
tourist barge. They were taken from hotels around the area. As you know, asylum seekers are being put up in hotels now because there's such a big backlog mm. for their applications. Um, and so the government is now spending £8 million pounds, um, a day on asylum hotels. Um, so this is supposed to be their cheaper solution. But I think um, one website worked out that it's actually more expensive than putting them up at the Ritz so oh far. My and goodness it must me. be more than that by now because I think it's it's been costing a huge amount of money just sitting there empty yeah. um, since August. What do the locals feel about it? Yeah, well, none of the locals want it there. Whether they're pro or anti-migration, everyone I spoke to was really unhappy about yeah. it. Um, because, you know, it is a lot... I think the capacity for it is something like um, 222, but because they put bunk beds in there, mm-hmm. it it could house 506 men. And if you you know bring all of these people into this tiny community, it's an island, it's like a rock um, off the mainland, mm. and then of course it's going to have an impact on the day to day lives and the services that people are accessing in their in their home. So I mean, it, it was really disquieting for people who live there. Um, but the main issue that people had, who I spoke to, was that they were worried about tensions between sort of racists who might come and try and stir up problems um, and the the men on the boat who aren't allowed to work. They barely get any money to to do anything. So, you know, there was potential for tensions and, you know, people people on the island were worried about that, whether or not, you know, they were pro uh, taking in asylum seekers or not. And I think that is, you know, a legitimate worry for both the men and the the locals. So it it is... it's a really bad idea, basically. There's issues with the plumbing. I actually spoke to someone who works at the port who um, who told me privately that um, there's even a risk of it tipping over. What? Oh, my God. Yeah, because if there was a fire, um, but if you were trying to put the fire out uh, with hoses, as would be the case on this island where it's just fire engines, you know, um, then there's even the risk of it listing. So it's, it's, it's not a safe place to keep people. And they... they... The people on the boat, they receive £9.50 a week, mm-hmm. we've been told, and they're, they're legally not allowed to work either. What kind of life is that, realistically, in terms of what, what kind of life can they actually have? They can have no life. So the two guys that I spoke to who were on the boat, one of them had been a police officer back in... They were both from Pakistan, the men that I spoke to, and one of them had been doing a computer sciences degree. You know, they they wanted to get on in life, basically, um, and they couldn't. And they were just saying to me, can you just tell your government, let us work? Because we are, you know, you're paying for everything and we're doing nothing. And it's ironic because saying that is exactly the same phrase that I was hearing from the people who were really not happy with having these sort of asylum seekers housed in this boat thinking that they were living the life of Riley you know they're getting everything we're getting nothing so they but everyone's saying the same thing you know mm. it's, it's, it's illogical it doesn't work but the Bibby stock home I mean it, it might be the only boat for a while but there are plans to use former military bases to to roll this out do you have a sense of a will it happen how far along it is and and what that could look like yeah I think two further barges have actually been commissioned so this oh, is wow. this is not going to be the only one um Basically, the asylum hotel policy is incredibly unpopular with the public. People sometimes, uh, you know, legitimately have had, you know, weddings and things booked at these hotels, but they're they're at the last minute commandeered by the government um, for asylum seekers. So that feels unfair mm. to people who live locally. And also just the, the word hotel makes it sound luxurious, even though I've spoken to people living in some of the asylum hotels, it is not luxurious at all. Um, you know, I've been sent photos of people's like with chronic bed bu- bites and stuff. They don't, they're not getting a good service in these hotels. Nevertheless, the perception is um, that it's a big 
big waste of money and that people are sort of getting an easy ride. And MPs who have these um, hotels uh, sort of put into their constituencies are really unhappy with the government as well. So it's politically really difficult for the government to carry on with this policy. That's why they're trying to find other places that sound less Mm. palatable to the general public to put them in. So I do think they're going to try and persist with doing that. One of their big things is trying to reduce the asylum hotel population. Um, But as you can see... But surely the the way to do that is just to reduce the backlog. So why can't they fix the application process rather than look for more prison-like or, yeah, yeah, visibly horrible things <laughs> yeah, to do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that is exactly it. So the problem is that there's a massive backlog because the Home Office hasn't been able to work through it. So there's a lot of people, there's thousands of people waiting for their applications to be um, processed and that's why they have to be kept in in limbo in these places. So it's, it's a government failing. But Robert Jenrick almost... Um, almost admitted in an interview that it would make Britain more attractive to asylum seekers to come to if they started efficiently working through those applications. So there is almost this kind of stasis where the government doesn't want to say that, you know, you will have your application processed quickly if you come here for asylum. So there is, yeah, there's this stalemate. Um, But yeah, it's absolutely a Home Office failing and it has been for a really long time. Is the Home Office still fit for purpose? Is it trying to hold too many responsibilities or is it is it that it's been run so badly that it seems like it's not fit for purpose? Uh, I mean, it seems from, you know, its core responsibilities, it is failing on a number of them. I mean, look at the state of our police forces as, as well, mm-hmm. how much scandal has have surrounded them. And policing is probably the main way that the general public kind of collide with Home Office ser- services. Most people don't really know about how the asylum system works or doesn't work. I mean, it's just, it, it is, it, at the moment, it doesn't feel fit for purpose because it isn't delivering its sort of general aims as a, as a department. And it's ramping up the rhetoric more and more. You know, we're going to stop the small boats. That's one of Rishi Sunak's five missions. Um, You know, we're going to reduce uh, net immigration. Actually, immigration is at a record high now. The small boats are still coming. So it's failing on its own terms. So I think it would be fair to paint it as, as not fit for purpose at the moment. Here's a not-so-fun fact for you. Since the Conservatives came to power in 2010, they've had 11 Justice Secretaries, including Nish's favourite, Dominic Raab. He's been in twice. It's been a rough week for Alex Chalk, who is the latest holder of this poison chalice, after it was reported that judges were being told to delay sending criminals to prisons uh, because they were too full Two-thirds of prisons in England and Wales are overcrowded, with record numbers of prisoners being doubled up in single cells. Back in September, it was reported that London's HMP Wandsworth was holding 1,600 men when a terrorism suspect managed to escape. And to be clear, the capacity of that prison is supposed to be 900. The prison population peaked last week at 88,225 with only 500 beds left. And it looks like these latest stats have made the government finally bite the bullet. On Monday, the Justice Secretary announced an emergency temporary measure to release some prisoners a few weeks early to ease the pressure. He also laid out plans to deport more foreign prisoners, build more rapid deployment cells, aka porter cabins in exercise yards, and cut prison sentences of less than 12 months. But... Will any of it work? Pia Sinha is the director of the Prison Reform Trust and an ex-prison governor. Welcome to Pod Save the UK, Pia. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Why is this happening now? Why are our prisons so full? 
So it's not now. It's been building for a number of years. So the government themselves have known that we were we were kind of moving towards this crisis in probably in 2020. And some of that has been because, you know, there's been 20,000 additional police officers and they expected that demand would rise as a result of that. Then you had the pandemic, then you had the court backlog, then you had the barrister strike. So all of these reasons have been kind of, they're not, it's not like it's suddenly come around the corner and bit them. It's been known for a number of years. So the projections of our population rise were kind of clearly um, documented. They were building capacity as a result of that. But the crisis or, or the debate about what we do about it has been kind of stymied by the reluctance to have a full proper conversation about what's wrong with our prison system. And um, and that has prevented decisions and solutions from coming up ahead of the curve. We've waited to the point that it's past the point of no return to announce these because it feels really difficult and unpalatable for this government to say anything that makes them look soft on crime. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the solutions, uh, I just want to ask you, what are the problems that uh, that you've witnessed that are being created by this overcrowding? Okay, so overcrowding is, is incredibly inhumane for a start. So when you have a cell, which is a tiny cell, its purpose is for one person. It's built for one person. It has in-cell sanitation, so there's a toilet in it. And literally, there's enough room for a toilet, a single bed, a desk, a chair, and a sink, right? So when you get overcrowded cells, what you essentially do is put a bunk bed in there. So you've got two people in there. And that makes that whole living experience even even worse. It's inhumane. So when you have a situation where prisons are overcrowded, you've got suddenly much more, many more prisoners and too few staff. So you can only deliver a safe regime if you've got the right ratio between prisoners and staff. When you have overcrowded prisons, you have a really impoverished regime for those prisoners. And that means they're locked up in those tiny cells, often doubled up, without any purposeful activity. They get half an hour of fresh air, which they're legally required to get. But apart from that, they get nothing else. And that builds a kind of absolutely you know, awful environment in the prison. So prisoners are frustrated, they're angry, they can't have contact with their family, they're not able to kind of look after their well-being, they're not getting access to stuff, they're bored. And all of that builds a pressure cooker within the prison and it compromises safety, it compromises well-being of staff. And that's perhaps what the issue is. So in terms of solutions, I mean, and this comes back to what you were saying about perhaps part of the problem is there's a lack of political will because they don't want to appear to be, in inverted commas, soft on crime. Does that mean a possible solution involves reduced sentencing? So possible solution uh, involves, well, actually, the solution requires a cross-party conversation about what the purpose of prisons are. You know, are we, is the purpose of prison to rehabilitate people or is it about punishing people? And obviously, we know that it's not one or the other. It's obviously a, a kind of mixture of two things, but it needs to be proportionate. And what we've got into is that we've got into this fixation of punishing people and punishing or punishment looks like longer and longer sentences. But the the kind of other primary purpose of prison is also to rehabilitate. And if you want to rehabilitate people, 
giving them very, very long sentences doesn't achieve that. Um, it's much more about investing in prisons, investing in interventions, and also looking at early interventions, you know, ahead of the sort of pipeline. What can you do before someone gets that bad that you have to put them in prison in the first place? You know, what can you do meaningfully in the community to give them the help to address some of those underlying issues so that they're not drifting into prison in the first place? But actually what we need to address is, you know, why, why are these crimes being committed? You know, the case for women particularly, you know, majority of women, and I've worked as a psychologist in, in prisons with women, majority of women drift into prisons because they've had devastating histories of abuse. They've gone into the track of drug use and alcohol abuse as a way of coping with the trauma in adult life. And that's what drifts them into prison. And then you give them short sentences whereby they lose contact with their children and their families, they lose mm. their homes, they lose their jobs, and then you spit them out six months later in a far, far worse position than when they came in. So these are these are the kind of honest, sensible, rational, evidence-based debates that we should be having, yeah. but we're not having those debates because people get really alarmist as soon as you try and say, well, actually, we shouldn't send people to prison. Because it becomes such an emotive subject. But we have to impose some rationality into this rather than just, you know, be fed by our emotions. Over half the women in prison are sentenced to less than six months. And there's so many, you know, campaign groups. And you yourself have written a huge amount about this and done a lot of research into this and advocates more community sentencing for women because of the nature of the majority of the crimes being low level and often driven by addiction and mental health issues. Why is it so difficult to bring up something like that, which is rational and evidence based? in this particular forum um i i I, I sort of it it sounds naive even as i say it because even as i say it i am imagining a hypothetical daily mail op-ed piece about about this Are, are we kind of constrained by the wider conversation culturally and across the media about the purpose of prison yes i think that's i think you've hit the nail on the head so when, when I was working in prisons, whenever you were going to try and do something innovative or creative, the kind of question was, oh, does it pass the Daily Mail test? We're petrified. Wow. We're petrified of the Daily Mail and the headlines and all the rest of it. And I think that influences the politicians. It kind of scares them into not being able to bring honesty into that debate. And I think that, you know, unless we are able to be brave and kind of call the truth for what it is. I mean, so people often say, well, why don't we have a Scandinavian model where people are, you know, where where we have a much more humane uh, and inclusive approach towards people who commit crime. Now, the issue is, is they have a very different society. Their, Their societal kind of belief system seems to be very different from the UK belief system and their belief system is about, you know, uh, this is our problem. If someone commits harm to society, then society needs to look inwardly and say, well, what what is our responsibility in getting this person back into the fold? It takes a kind of inclusive approach to people rather than ours, which says they have done bad, they need to be punished, let's just, you know, um, lock them up and throw away the key. You know, every time someone liberal like myself uh, does an interview, if you read the comment section, it's actually really, it's it's really sad. 
Never read the comments, Pia. <laughs> yes, I know. It's a note to self that I shouldn't do that. But yeah, I think I think that what that what we need to do, we've come to this crisis point and prisons are at this crisis point and without having this dialogue about public opinion and the the impact that it has on our politicians and our system, we're not going to be able to really get to the heart of the problem what actually fixes the system. I'm going to make a confession guys. I have received parking tickets in my time. Wow. I'm not great at parking. And I once wrote a piece about receiving a parking ticket and I have never received so much ire from people. Like, you get what you're given. You break the rules, you get a ticket. And it was like they, there was a kind of lust for me to get punished. I paid my fine, by the way, before anyone yeah. comes for me. And just kind of what you were talking about as well, Pia, like, you know, that, that there is this sort of desire for vengeance, for retribution. So I think when you're talking about the humanity of the prisoners, there will be sections of the public who don't give a shite, to be yeah. completely honest. Yeah. They don't really care about that. But am I right in thinking that humane conditions in prison impacts reoffending, and mm. so you should care about that humanity? I guess I just wanted to hear from you to yeah. just lay that out for yeah. people that might think that this is a, a, a pointless, woolly conversation. Yeah, so it's it's not a pointless, woolly com conversation. I think that anyone with any bit of common sense would know is that if you treat someone inhumanely, you treat them as an, anim as an animal, you put them in degrading conditions, they're going to come out of that experience far more traumatized and, and worse in their psychological kind of well-being. And when someone's in that state of mind, they're less likely to give a shit about what they do to society because they see that what society has done to them is inhumane mm. and degrading. So, you know, part of rehabilitation is also being able to model a different way. Because if people who people who end up in prison have had shitty lives, right? And if you go into a prison and what you get is more of a shitty life, more violence, more degradation, more humiliation, how is that actually going to make you kind of reflect and think differently? Oh, you know what? I'm going to go out to society and, and do my bit now. You're not. You're going to be worse mm. off. So having humane conditions, teaching people that there's a culture of care, that there's compassion. Compassion is a really important part of justice, isn't it? You know, justice is not just about punishment. It's, it's about trying to rehabilitate someone to think slightly differently. And most victims would say that the main thing that they want to happen from someone who's perpetrated an offense against them or others is that they don't go out and do that again. And if you put them in a prison where they're not learning any of that, in fact, they're worse, what you're doing is you're risking them making more victims. So on every level, it doesn't work. So we really need to be able to arm people with some of the facts and the truths about the situation so we can have an intelligent debate. And that's that's the point I wanted to make. Pia, um, thank you so much for joining us. That was Pia Sinner, the director of the Prison Reform Trust, um, who unfortunately shows us that sometimes common sense fails the Daily Mail test. <laughs> So we're still here with Anusha Kalian from The Statesman. And I know you've been listening in. Uh, you've written a lot about prisons in the past. I think you're actually working on an article right now. <laughs> what were your thoughts on that conversation? I thought it was really interesting because this is what seems to happen to every, well, pretty much every justice secretary who gets into that position. They see what the logical solutions are to trying to, you know, reduce our prison population and reduce reoffending. And then it's whether or not they have the political bravery mm. to, you know, uh, 
to, to sort of brave the gauntlet of the Daily Mail test and suggest that we shouldn't have these short sentences. Obviously, the government has been pushed into this by circumstance um, in this in this instance. But, you know, someone like David Gork, who was Justice Secretary, he actually writes for us now, um, quite a liberal guy. Um, he wanted to cut prison sentences of less than 12 months, and he's been writing about that ever since. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things that's like... Um, an open secret in government. It's a bit like drug um, decriminalisation. Yeah. Like everyone knows mm. what actually works, but then when you sort of collide with public opinion, it is really difficult as a minister, as a government, to uh, to propose some of these measures. I kind of think it's down to a Tory government to do this. It's like a Nixon goes to China kind of thing. Right. Um, because Labour, you know, are seen as softer on crime. They are seen as um, liberals and sort of proponents of, you know, prisoners having flat screen TVs and pool tables and stuff. And, you know, you saw all of that coverage in the new Labour years when they did actually flood prisons with more money for rehabilitation programmes and psychologists and things. So I do think it's down to the Conservatives to do this. But it is funny that they've kind of been forced into making these changes rather than come to the logical conclusion to make Coming up next, we'll be talking about the forthcoming by-elections. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favourite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalised station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So this week sees two big by-elections that are both the results of high-profile Tory scandals. Uh, The by-election in mid-Bedfordshire is for the seat vacated by Boris Johnson's number one fan, (laughs) Nadine Doris. By number one, I mean only. (laughs) Only fan, Nadine Doris. Um, She announced her resignation after being snubbed for a place in the House of Lords, but then took another 11 weeks to actually resign amidst growing anger from her constituents. The by-election in Tamworth has been called after the incumbent Tory MP Chris Pincher was accused of drunkenly groping two men at a London club. The town was without an MP for nearly a year after Pincher disappeared from view and only resigned once he'd lost an appeal against his suspension. Pincher's downfall was one of a series of scandals which contributed to Boris Johnson being forced out of Downing Street. So, Anoush, two by-elections. I'm always really excited about a by-election because I think, oh, it's an opportunity to give a sucker punch to the Tories. But actually these two these are there's a good chance they might hang on to them, right? Yeah, they're not these ones aren't straightforward. Um yeah. so mid Bedfordshire the Labour's never won there before. Um, and it is sort of second to the Tories in terms of the vote last time round. But it, it was thought at the beginning when Nadine Doris said that she was going to stand down as an MP that it would be the Lib Dems to win it because it's sort of this semi-rural seat and the right. kind of place yeah. that they've been winning in by-elections where people have been trying to give sucker punches to the Tories, like yeah. you say. But since then, sort of Labour's overtaken in terms of the odds. And there's this strange situation where both the Lib Dem and the Labour campaigns are 
fighting for the seat full-throatedly rather than one of them being like, okay, you take this one and then we'll take another one, which has kind of been the kind of informal packs that they've been doing in other seats. So there is the risk that the Tories can come up through the middle, Mm -hmm. even though the general public, you know, wherever I go to report, are really fed up with the Conservatives. And of course, in this seat in particular, Nadine Doris just hasn't been representing her constituents and there's a lot of anger there. Um, So there is this strange situation where the Lib Dem and Labour campaigns have been quite hostile style towards each other. Um, I was talking to a Labour source who was like, I don't understand why there hasn't been our usual non-aggression pact in that, yeah. in that seat. Well, yeah. How yeah. has that fallen through? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think really it is because from the start, from the announcement of Doris um, saying she would stand down, people suddenly assume this is another Lib Dem win. And so Lib Dems sort of got like, you know, excited about it because they are, they really like delivering these big blows to the government. Yeah. Um, and Ed Davey does a... Yeah, strange and he d- visual and he's photo probably, He's probably yeah, bought exactly. a lot of like toys <laughs> that he wants to use for the photo op and so wants to make sure that he gets to use them. Um, but then it looked like sort of labour. So it's kind of neck and neck, it was looking like. Um, right. So I think both campaigns just have completely gone for it. In a way, it does help both of them because they are constantly having to say, no, no, we haven't stitched anything up. We don't have any formal p- packs. So at least this proves that actually they are just separate opposition parties and they both want to win. That's because, you know, we talk a lot about tactical voting on this show, but this seems like an example in which actually there isn't an obvious uh, solution in terms of get the Tories out, vote X, Y, Z. Yeah. I do wonder if this is a a kind of sign of the times to come in terms of the next election, that actually the tactical voting um, approach has these areas where it just doesn't really quite work. Yeah, there are certain places, certain constituencies, which are basically three-way fights. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're going to see sort of like um, Labour or Lib Dem standing aside for each other in those seats because they do want to win the most seats, you know, like that. And also their local campaigners find it very disappointing when they don't get the resources and the shadow cabinet members and, you know, the big figures coming down to help them campaign because they're there on the ground the whole year round. You know, so they feel there's sometimes tension between the central party and the local campaign. So I think there will be certain seats like this in the general election where you won't see that tactical sort of informal pact style thing going on. But there's not enough, I think, for it to really benefit the Tories. In terms of the other by-election, do you think that that is a more clear-cut opportunity for the Labour Party? Because Tamworth was a Labour seat in the Blair Brown years, but there's still quite a significant Tory majority that needs to be overturned. Yeah, so I think Tamworth is more clear-cut and, you know, from sort of speaking to people within the Labour campaign there, I think they do think it's an easier fight than mid-beds because you're right, it used to be this bellwether seat. So it turned, it actually turned Labour in a by-election in 96. So the year before the general election. So we're kind of seeing a parallel here. Um, And so it went Labour then, they clung on to it in in the general and then it went back to Tory in 2010. So it's kind of switched with the times. But since then it's become more and more Tory. So it's trended Conservative and now now it's a nearly 20,000 majority. Right, yeah. Like much of the Midlands, this is a really interesting thing. So people talk about the North-South divide and the Red Wall versus Blue Wall. Actually, the Midlands is probably the place that has had the most significant political trend in recent years, which is just to trend Tory, um, much faster than your your average um, counties. So 
Staffordshire, which is where Tamworth is, all 12 MPs there are Tory. Right. Staffordshire is one of the top five Tory counties in terms of vote share. So these places are going more and more conservative. Mm. It's very Brexit voting as well. 66% voted leave. So it's the kind of place where Labour should actually really struggle. But what it looks like is that they're getting quite a positive reception on the ground there. I went round with some of their campaigners last week and while people were a little bit reluctant to say, oh yeah, I'm going to switch to Labour, they were definitely saying I'm not voting Tory again. Right, okay. And Labour are the contender there. So, you know, there is definitely a chance that they could they could potentially win it, which would upset this deeper political trend. Is that wider national malaise with the Tory party or is that in Tamworth specifically to do with Chris Pincher and, you know, what he, what he has been found to have done? Is, is it specifically a Pincher thing? To be honest, that didn't really come up and right. Labour campaigners there privately said to be honest that's not the big thing here and the thing that came up most was really the reputation of the Conservatives on the national stage after Partygate so that still comes up you know as journalists and podcasters we've kind of in a way moved on from that because we're so sort of following the news day to day actually the public holds grudges for much longer Um, and so Partygate comes up the mini budget came up a lot you know someone um, that we spoke to had lost her job because of that and was trying to sell her house and couldn't and so there's all of these things that people are blaming on the Conservatives. And really, Rishi Sunak's big mistake, and I was talking to a, a very like long-standing, respected pollster about this, was to not completely separate himself from that period when he first came in. Um, he had a chance to do it over the Privileges Committee that ruled that Boris Johnson had misled Parliament and he, he equivocated. And, you know, since then, I, I th- I've, you've seen his personal approval ratings have yeah. not held up. So I think his only chance really was just to completely condemn both Liz Truss's and Boris Johnson's leadership. And I think he missed that opportunity. Before uh, before we let you go, um, the SNP conference happened this week uh, in Aberdeen. Uh, we've obviously not talked about it a huge amount this week. And that's largely because next week we've actually got the SNP leader and First Minister Hamza Youssef uh, coming on to the podcast. Is there a question you would particularly like to ask him? To be honest, it's not that political, but I would like to ask him how his in-laws are doing. Because yeah. they're stuck that's in big, Gaza. Yeah. And I think the way that he's handled this, I think he's oh, walked a really more. good line, yeah. given he's got this personal uh, story going on in the background. Must be very worried about it. But hes I think he's held himself very well. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to ask him about that. I mean, that. definitely, you know, we were talking earlier about seeing those religious leaders uh, coming out on that show of leadership. There was one photo of of him, he's at a synagogue in East Renfrewshire um, and he's hugging the mother of someone who had, had died in the Hamas attacks. And just that moment of just like, put politics aside, we are human beings and we are in grief and we can support each other, was so moving and beautiful. He visited the synagogue in Glasgow uh, and said, your grief is my grief. Mm. And for somebody who has very active, you know, and a very ongoing, difficult situation with his in-laws being trapped in Gaza, it's an incredibly powerful piece of leadership, I think. So if you have any questions for Hamza Youssef, please do get in touch with us. The uh, email address to find us on is psuk at reducelistening.co.uk or you can WhatsApp it to us on 07514644572 and we'll put the best ones to him. But uh, in the meantime, the only thing left to say is bye, Anoush. Thanks bye. very much for coming in. Thanks you so come much back for having me. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Anoush. <laughs> 
PSUK's hero and villain is back. We know you've missed it, especially Nick, who emailed to say, don't think due to your excellent interviews with Rob Delaney and George Parker that we didn't notice you left us without your hero villain last week. I'm sure you'll find a way to make it up to us. So this is for you, Nick. Nish, take it away. Who's your villain of the week? Uh, so the villain of the week is Peter Bone, uh, who was the Conservative MP uh, for Wellingborough uh, and has been since 2005 and still is uh, and served as the deputy leader of the House of Commons for a period last year. Um, the Parliament's independent expert panel found that he had bullied and was sexually inappropriate around a former member of staff. The report said the bullying involved violence, shouting and swearing, mocking, belittling and humiliating behaviour and ostracism. The willful pattern of bullying also included an unwanted incident of sexual misconduct when the complainant was trapped in a room with the respondent Jeez. in a hotel in Madrid. This was a deliberate and conscious abuse of power using a sexual mechanism in decent exposure. Now, in July 2022, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson appointed Mr Bone to the job of Deputy Commons Leader, which incredibly involves handling how complaints of bullying are dealt with. Mr Bone has denied the allegations, calling them without foundation, and is appealing the decision. It feels like a party that at the moment is just... I mean, it just feels like it's filled with perverts. (laughs) Like, the Conservative Party at the moment does just feel like it's, it's just full of misconduct and is turning blind eyes to misconduct. On the subject of Peter Bone, uh, I should say uh, that uh, Fern Brady, is a fantastic comedian, was uh, drawing attention to some comments he had made about some of her work in the past. Uh, Fern uh, used to host a show with Alison Spittle called Wheel of Misfortune and Peter Bone had actually commented on the content of it in the Daily Mail and he had been very angry uh, with his, some of the content uh, that Fern and Alison were putting out and uh, said that uh, the majority of young people would find what they were talking about quite offensive. Okay. And what I would say to Peter Bone is, I would get your own house in order. <laughs> I would get your own house in order because I think two people talking about offensive things is not as bad as doing a huge <laughs> amount of offensive things. Okay, Peter Bone. As usual, the moralizers turn out to have the least morals possible. Looks a lot like Sven Goran Eriksson, though, doesn't he? Peter Bone does look does like he? former England manager Sven Goran Eriksson. Yes, yes. Oh, sorry for Sven Goran Eriksson. Yeah, I feel sorry for he had him. A tough enough time back then, and now he's going to be walking around people mistaking him for Peter Bone. <laughs> Coco, the day that we're recording happens to be World Menopause Day and you have a very appropriate hero of the week for us. I do indeed. It's actually heroes. So it's the women who are currently taking on their male bosses who discriminate against them because they are basically just going through the menopause. So the first woman I'd like to mention is Karen Farkerson. She is a 49-year-old office manager in Scotland. She recently won a 37k payout after her boss told her that she used the menopause as an excuse for everything. She was told to just get on with it after being off work ill due to her symptoms and Employment Tribunal heard that her boss um, in Aberdeenshire dismissed it all as as aches and pains. So, I mean, look, something we talk a lot about on this show is about how rights that are won need to be defended, but they also need to be deepened as we move through the times. They need to be updated. And, you know, under the Equality Act, you cannot discriminate against someone based on their sex, based on their age and based on their disability. So you might think that given that lots of women go through menopause at a certain age, and sometimes it can be debilitating, that being prejudiced against women experiencing that would be covered and, and no one would be doing it. That's not actually been the case. And sadly, 
women have had to take this to the courts. So another one, Maria Rooney, uh, she took sickness leave from her job as a social worker. Very important job. We don't have enough of them. Yep. So even more galling. Um, at Leicester City Council due to symptoms, she received a warning for being off so much and eventually she just resigned due to the bad treatment, bad vibes. Um, she's taking her case to tribunal. It's being supported by the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission. It will be a legal first for a tribunal. I mean, look, there, there will be other examples like this and there'll be women that are doing it away from the headlines, just fighting this battle in their own workplaces. And so given that it's World Menopause Day, I just wanted to give a shout out to all those all those women doing that because it's vital work. They're making it better for me when I go through the menopause. And yeah. so for that, thank you so much. And yeah, you're our hero of the week. That's incredible and a lovely thing to celebrate. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who got in touch uh, to say uh, how much they enjoyed their conversation that we had with comedian Rob Delaney last week. Um, if you missed it, it's well worth going back to. Commenting on X, which still doesn't seem right, it's still it's Twitter. Uh, commenting on X brackets Twitter, at uh, I Can Read said, after caring for my dying mother in the US, I cannot emphasise enough how much you don't want your health system to turn into ours. And I appreciate how much Rob knows that and fights for the NHS. It's a very nice message. Thank you so much for getting in touch. Uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. That's psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. We also love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 644 572. Internationally, that's plus 44 We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode or you can send us in a question about British politics or suggest something you'd like us to cover. And just a reminder that next week we've got Scotland's First Minister Hamza Youssef joining us and we'd love to put some of your questions to him. So if you have something you'd like to ask, email us at psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keats Thorpe. Video editing was by David Kaplowitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Dargahi. The executive producers are Dan Jackson, Madeline Herringer and Anishka Sharma with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're at Pod Save the UK, all one word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favourites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalised listening experience simply by selecting any song or album and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.